Please open your Bible with me and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we covered the beginning first eight verses of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus discusses the issue of giving to the needy and praying. And he contrasts those two different virtues with how hypocrites do those same two things. And then he has the Lord's Prayer. Remember, we're skipping the Lord's Prayer this week. We will come back to it, Lord willing, next week. But we're skipping ahead to the last of these three virtues that that are on this list, and the last is fasting. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. And let me just say at the very beginning of a sermon on fasting, I have never preached in my life on fasting. I've never taught on fasting in my life. I've hardly ever fasted in my life. Isn't this getting better and better? You're like, man, I'm glad we came today. Uh, j- just to be honest with you, uh, if, if you think of sanctification, which is growing in Christ's likeness, if you think you have a toolbox for sanctification with different tools the Lord has given us, we can rattle off a lot of those tools. The tools would be things like Bible reading and prayer, uh, co- godly conversation with others, church, all these different things we can mention. And I hope we use those tools. There is a tool that is virtually non-existent from my toolbox, and it may be almost non-existent from your toolbox. It is not the most important of the tools, but it is an actual tool that is supposed to be in our box for sanctification, and it's the tool of fasting. And the Lord really has, uh, it's been challenging for me to, to study for this and to prepare for this and to really think about how to apply this in real life. And so I hope you find this helpful. We're, we're going we're to cover a lot on the topic of fasting today. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. This is the word of the Lord as Jesus was preaching. Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, with, uh, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I've got four points. Number one, what is fasting? Number two, what are ungodly reasons for fa- to fast? Number three, what should, uh, excuse me, why should we fast? And number four, how often should we fast? So what is fasting? What are ungodly reasons to fast? Why should we fast? And how often should we fast? Let me just say at the very front end here, I got a lot of help from Don Whitney in his book. Uh, I wasn't looking at his book, but he talks about this in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, I believe, and he has some helpful things on fasting. And John Piper wrote a book on fasting called A Hunger for God, which is probably one of the better resources I know of on the topic. So A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer by Piper from the 90s uh, is a very helpful book on the subject. So number one, what is fasting? Let's just start with the very simple, basic definition. Don Whitney says, fasting is simply going without food for spiritual purposes. Fasting is going without food for spiritual purposes. And you just think about this. Why is this something that we see throughout Scripture? I was working through, I was reading, I mean, I think I read most of the verses in the Bible on fasting. It wasn't, you know, it's not so many, but I worked through as many of them as I could in both Testaments just to see what, why do people fast? When do we see it in Scripture? What's, what's going on around it when we, when we hear about it? And it was, it was a very interesting learning experience. But fasting is certainly, it's got to be probably, the most uncomfortable and perhaps unpopular spiritual discipline in our culture. 
Probably not true of every culture, but at least in our culture, uh, I think fasting has got to be one of the most uncomfortable and unpopular spiritual disciplines. Piper in his book mentioned another person who had done some research, and apparently, I don't know if this is accurate, I haven't fact-checked this, but according to this one guy, uh, there was a period of, I don't know, 40 years in American history where no one wrote a book on fasting. <laughs> Just like 40 years, and no one had written a book on fasting, apparently, uh, a while back, and now there have been some books on fasting. I will say Piper's opening sentence I love in the book, his opening sentence is, beware of books on fasting which is a great statement because there's a lot of bad theology wrapped up with books on fasting that we'll mention in a moment. So let me say here, fasting is not the magic secret of the Christian life. It's not that one thing that if you just get this figured out, everything's going to be amazing in your spiritual life. Sometimes people either neglect it altogether, which has been what I've been guilty of, and my guess is there's probably, I'm not alone, that we've neglected that. Other people get into fasting and they make it this be-all, end-all standard of Christianity, that if you fast a lot, you're a really spiritual Christian, and if you don't do it as much, you must not be as spiritual. So beware of over-elevating or under-elevating, undervaluing fasting, but again, in The last century, one person said, it has largely gone out the door in American churches. Just largely speaking, uh, fasting is not something that is spoken of very often. And it's interesting, the first sin in the Bible was a violation of a dietary restriction. Isn't that interesting? The very first sin in human history had to do with the misuse of food. So this certainly is important, how we eat and how we think about fasting and its purposes. Let me give you, I'm going to have all kinds of points in today's sermon under my points. Uh, maybe I could post the notes somewhere later. I don't know if you'll be able to keep up with all this, but just, just maybe uh, if you can write fast, you can try, but you may just want to sit back and listen. I can try to post these maybe on our blog or something some, someday this week. Uh, here are eight types of fasting, uh, fasts mentioned in the Bible, eight different types of fasts that you'll see in Scripture. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. <clears throat> so just to be clear, I'm under point number one, what is fasting? Just explaining that. Here are eight types of fasting. You have a partial fast. You see, it's kind of like in Daniel chapter 1 when Daniel and his friends first get to Babylon. It's not a full fast. They don't abstain from all food, but remember, they abstain from all meat. They don't eat any meat, and they abstain from all the wine of the king's table. They only eat they only eat vegetables and they drink water. It's not a complete fast. They don't abstain from all food, but it's a partial kind of abstention from food. And let me just say here, a lot of people, Don Whitney was really helpful on this. Let's use some common sense as we think about fasting. So for women who are pregnant or nursing, for people who have diabetes, people who have other health issues, we're going to have to think very carefully about fasting, okay? Don't jump into something uh, without thinking carefully about your own physical health. You do not want to do long-term damage to your health uh, in fasting. That's not the goal here. So be wise, and you may even need to talk to a doctor if you're planning on doing you know, fasting that lasts for a certain period of time, more than a day, say, or something like that. You would want to talk to a medical expert who can give you sound advice. For those who are unable to do uh, without food altogether… Uh, it's interesting, you could, you could consider different kinds of fasts. So if you have to eat for whatever reason, that's fine. Uh, consider fasting. These are some things you could do. You could consider fasting from certain enjoyable foods. You go, this sermon is going to be fantastic. You could, you could consider fasting from dessert for a certain period of days. Don Whitney says, consider eating something that's very plain, per- perhaps just plain rice for a period of meals. That's all you would eat or something else along those lines. You might just eat vegetables. You might just drink water or have smaller portions of whatever food you have to have. The point is that you are intentionally going without a legitimate pleasure in regards to food, not because food is bad. There's a time for feasting in the Bible. Jesus did a lot of feasting. He ate a, a lot of meals. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is there is a time time and a place 
for Christians for various reasons that we will get into to say, God, you have given food as a gift. I am going to deliberately choose to restrict, restrict myself from the legitimate pleasure of certain foods because I want to what? To know you better. We'll get into some of the reasons why. It is true that even literally skipping one meal can be a legitimate biblical fast. Um, if you just skip lunch on one day for spiritual purposes, that is a biblical fast. So sometimes we can get so crazy on this stuff that you, you got to go two weeks without food. No, don't. Let's not go out of here and go two weeks without food. Okay, let, let, let's stop and think reasonably about what is being discussed here. A lot of the fasts in the Bible were about 24 hours long. That's basically from dinner till dinner basically, without food. So, that, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about more generally, although there are longer fasts in Scripture. Uh, one member of John Piper's church sent him an email and said, for certain reasons, I cannot go without food altogether, but uh, I'm considering different kinds of fasts, like from TV. We might say today from social media. We might say from certain uses of our phone for a period of time. Uh, it might be YouTube or Netflix or whatever. We say there might be something legitimate there, but for the sake of denying myself a legitimate pleasure, I'm going to devote that time to seeking the Lord and being in His presence and praying rather than spending this hour watching this show or this sports event or this whatever it may be, a legitimate pleasure that we might abstain from. Although to be clear, technically, the word fast always refer refers to not eating food in the Bible. It never actually refers to going without other pleasures, but I think there is a secondary application you could make to other legitimate pleasures that we could choose to go without. So, a partial fast. Number two, absolute fast. Remember when, when, Paul gets, when Saul gets knocked off his horse or whatever he was riding and he meets Jesus? Why are you persecuting me? He goes into Damascus, now he's blinded. Remember, he ate no food and drank nothing for three days because he was overwhelmed by the fact that he was living his life for all the wrong things. And he realized Jesus was not the one to persecute, but he was actually the Savior. And he was rethinking everything from the top to the bottom, and he ate and drank nothing for three days. That is an absolute fast. Number three is a supernatural fast. This is Moses on Mount Sinai. Listen to Exodus 34, 28. So Moses was there with the Lord. Forty days and forty nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water. That's not something you can do without dying. That was a supernatural fast. That was a miraculous event that Moses did not drink anything for 40 days and 40 nights. That was a miraculous supernatural fast. Number four, a private fast. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all fasted for 40 days from food, and they all did that privately uh, alone. Number five would be a congregational fast. This is as a group. So let me just jump in here. When Jesus says you should not fast to be seen by others, this cannot be an absolute statement. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a lot of absolute statements that he doesn't necessarily mean literally absolutely, because there are legitimate fasts in both Old and New Testament where the whole group of people does it together. Are people going to know you're fasting if the whole church is fasting? Yes. So it's not always wrong for people to be aware of the fact you're fasting. The question has to do with your motives. Number six, there is a national fast. One of my favorite ones is not even with Israel. It's in Jonah chapter 3, Nineveh. Remember, the king gets sackcloth, cause a fast. All the people stop eating. He says, maybe the Lord, Yahweh, will be merciful to us. And the Lord turns from his anger and does not punish Nineveh at that time. A national fast. Number seven, a regular fast. There's no, it's, now, I'm not the expert on fasting. I'm trying to catch up, really, right now. But from what I, from what I can tell in my study, there is only one, and even this one's not perfectly clear, there's only one fast in the Old Testament that was commanded annually. This is in Leviticus 23, 27. It's before the Day of Atonement every year. They were told to abase themselves or to humble themselves, and that word almost certainly refers to fasting. And so there was probably one um, 
regular or yearly fast commanded of Israel, but only one as far as I know. I don't know of any other commanded regular fast. And number eight is the occasional fast, which is certainly the most common, which is fasting in a particular moment for a particular thing. So those are the different kind. What is fasting? Those are the different things. Now let's move into point number two, the second major point of the sermon. What are ungodly reasons to fast? You probably wish this section would be like the rest of the sermon. There's a lot of bad reasons to fast. We don't have to worry about this. <laughs> no, there are legitimate reasons, but here are some un- illegitimate reasons, some ungodly reasons to fast. Number one, we should not fast to earn something from God or to impress God with your suffering that you've, in- that you've caused to yourself by fasting. We are not earning anything from God by fasting. We're not earning blessings. We're not earning Him answering my prayer with a yes because look at me, God, I haven't eaten for three days. You've got to say yes now. That's not what this is. We're not manipulating God. We are not forcing God into a corner. We, God is sovereign and free. Fasting is not meant to earn anything from God. Just real quick, the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple to pray. Remember? The Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous and treated others with contempt, he said, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, the unjust, this poor tax collector over here, for I, I fast twice a week. This guy had put fasting, apparently he had missed meals two times every week, which is beyond anything commanded in the Bible. You're never commanded to fast twice a week in the Bible. He said, I'm above and beyond God's commands. I'm doing more than God commands. I fast twice every week. God, look how righteous I am. And then the tax collector comes, beats his chest, says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guess which one of these guys went home justified? Not the man who fasts, the man who has no fasting, the man who's just a sinner calling out for mercy. So fasting does not earn you anything from God. Please understand that. You can read the end of Colossians 2 about self-made… Listen here, we talked about it this summer. Paul says, beware of self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch things that perish with, with use. For he says, these things that are severe to your body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, apart from Jesus being in the midst of your fasting, your fasting is going to make you a worse person, not a better person. Because if your fasting is disconnected from Jesus and His grace, your fasting is going to become a self-righteousness program that makes you really extra special compared to those other people around you, like the man in in Jesus' parable. So be, be, be aware of that. Piper says, the danger of eating, now now listen, there's a two-sided danger with food. The danger of eating is that we fall in love with the gift, food. That can become gluttony in an extreme example. The danger of eating is that we fall in love with the gift. The danger of fasting is that we belittle the gift of food and we glory in our willpower. Do you hear the double-sided danger with food? We can either idolize food and use it for comfort rather than God. Or we can so abstain from food self-righteously that we don't really need God, because look what we've done on our own willpower. So beware of the double danger dealing with food and fasting. Another bad reason to fast is to spiritually impress others, like in our passage. Look at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." This is true of all spiritual uh, activities, but especially fasting because it's so rare today. Oh, beware of trying to make known to others that you are going without food for 24 hours. 
There's going to be something inside of you that so wants to raise the flag. You're in casual conversation, you're going to want to wake it, you're going to, want to bring it up in some way that doesn't sound like you're trying to bring it up, but you kind of bring it up just enough where they ask you something about it. Oh, why are you hungry? You said you were hungry. Oh, you know, I'm just a little hungry. Ask me more. I'm fasting, okay? Don't be that person, okay? Don't be begging for that compliment, fishing for, that, for, for people to ask you more about it. No, that's not the goal. The goal is to be seen by your Father who sees in secret, not to be seen by those who are around us. Piper said there's a difference between being seen fasting and fasting to be seen. It's one thing to be caught fasting. Can't help it. I was caught. I'm fasting. Okay. It's one thing to be seen. It's fine to be seen fasting, but fasting to be seen. That's where the danger lies. Won't go there right now. Isaiah 58, God says, if you want to be, these people were fasting but for bad reasons, and God says, why don't you actually become a genuinely loving person to those who need it rather than just fasting to try to show off? And He rebukes them in Isaiah 58. Okay, third bad reason to fast is as a key to worldly prosperity. Now, I'm going to name a name right now, okay? 58 minutes from this parking lot, you could drive to his church. Jensen Franklin is the pastor of Free Chapel Church in Gainesville, Georgia. Thousands of people go to his multiple campuses. He's written many books on, he's written multiple books on fasting. In fact, fasting is like his big thing, which is interesting. So I went to listen to just one of his sermons. It has 1.5 million views on YouTube. And I thought, I just want to hear what he has to say. I've never listened to him at length on fasting. I'm going to read you some quotes. This is how not to fast, okay? This is what he was teaching. These are direct quotes from his sermon Jensen Franklin says, quote, I felt led to tell you, he's talking to his church, I felt led to tell you to pray for the release of divine health and long life during this fast. So his church was going to fast for, the, for, the, for, for health and long life. In Genesis 15, 15, God promised Abraham, quote, you will live to a good old age. Turn to somebody and say, you're going to live to a good old age. This is a fast and a call to health and to long life. Okay, that's the misappropriation of the Bible. God did promise Abraham a long life. Did He promise you that? No. So taking a promise to Abraham that's not given to all Christians and applying it to us is misusing the Bible. And then if someone becomes very sick young, they'll say, well, wait, what about God's promise that I'm going to live a long time? He didn't make that promise. That was to Abraham. So we got to use Scripture properly. He also said this, everybody say, on this fast, there's going to be a release into my body of divine health and long life. I need you to shout right there. I'm feeling that one down in my soul. Then he said, these are some themes that I felt in my spirit, really felt this one. Believe God for the abundance of work, the abundance of prosperity. I heard this in my spirit. So he's saying that God said this to him in his heart. I heard this in my spirit, quote, believe me for miracle money. I didn't know it was going to be this bad, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Praise God. Can you believe God for the abundance of work that you get so busy that you have to hire on some people, that things really pick up, that God so begins to prosper and bless you that miracle money starts coming in to finance everything God's called you to do? Shout miracle money. Shout abundance of work. Doesn't that feel good, though? Doesn't that just feel good? Okay, no, that's not good. We don't want to fast for those reasons. I'm telling you that. The reason I'm naming him is because he's local, he's very well known, and his books on fasting are all over the place. I've seen his books on fasting all over the place. So beware. Don't listen to Jensen Franklin on this topic. Number three, why should we fast? And I'm sort of adapting seven points here from Don Whitney, who's really good. Uh, Why should we fast? Number one, and this this is pretty central. I'm going to read a long quote from Piper because I just can't say it better than this. Number one, we fast to express our hunger for God. We fast, we go without physical food to express a deeper hunger for God. Piper says, what we hunger for most 
we worship. That's, that could be a devastating sentence. What we hunger for most is our God. That's what we worship. Quote, Christian fasting is a test to see what desires control us. What are our bottom line passions? More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is so devastating and insightful. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. We all ease our discomfort using food and cover our unhappiness by setting our eyes on dinner time, which is why fasting ex- exposes all of us. It exposes our pain, our pride, our anger. Another author writes this, if pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately when we begin to fast. David said in Psalm 35, 13, I humbled my soul with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger, and then we will realize that we are angry because the anger is within us. We can't blame the hunger. We can rejoice, though, in this knowledge that because of what Christ has done, there is transformation that is available. Now listen to this. Piper says, when mid-morning comes and you want food so badly that the thought of lunch becomes as sweet as a summer vacation, <laughs> then suddenly you realize, oh, I forgot. I made a commitment. I cannot have that pleasure. I am fasting for lunch too. Then what are you going to do with all the unhappiness inside? Formerly, you blocked it out with the hope of a tasty lunch. The hope of food gave you the good feelings to balance out the bad feelings. But now the balance is off. You must find another way to deal with it. Are you all following? I mean, this is pretty wow to think about. Piper says, humbly and quietly, with scarcely a movement, fasting brings up out of the dark places of my soul the dissatisfactions in relationships, the frustrations of the ministry, the fears of failure, the emptiness of wasted time. And just when my heart begins to retreat to the delicious hope of eating supper with friends, she quietly reminds me, not tonight. It can be a devastating experience at first. Will I find spiritual communion with God sweet enough and hope in His promises deep enough, not just to cope, but to flourish and rejoice in Him? Or will I rationalize away my need to fast and retreat to the medication of food? I think of Jesus standing next to the woman at the well. Remember the disciples had gone into the city to get food? And He's evangelizing this woman, talking to her about, I'm the Christ, and He's sharing with her the living water, the true food from heaven. And the disciples get back and say, Master, here's your food. And what does He say? I have food to eat that you know not of. Jesus was experiencing a communion with God by walking in obedience that took away his physical appetite. He was good. He was wearied a few hours ago. Now he's sitting there and he's, he's fine because what? He was feeding off communing with God and obeying his Father. So point number one, why do we fast? To express our hunger for God. Point number two, to strengthen prayer. Forgive me from reading so much. I just don't know what else to do here. I'm reading again from Piper. So... This is a, uh, to strengthen prayer. This is an illustration from the summer of 1967. I had been in love with Noel. That's his wife. I'd been in love with Noel for a whole year. It was the summer before my senior year. It's going to make me emotional. I don't even know why. Hang on. It was the summer before my senior year in college. I was working as a water safety instructor at a Christian camp in South Carolina. She was hundreds of miles away working as a waitress. Never had I known an aching like this one. I'm going to tell you why this does move me, though, before I finish the quote. This is, this is what moves me. 
is the comparison. You've got to start making comparisons here. Mostly comparison's a bad thing, but this is a good comparison. We need to compare some of our natural hungers with our spiritual hungers, and when our natural hungers are stronger than our spiritual hungers, it makes me want to weep. So just follow this. Never had I known an aching like this one. Every day I would write her a letter and talk about this longing. In the late morning, just before lunch, there would be a mail call. When I heard my name and saw the lavender envelope, my appetite would be taken away. Or more accurately, my hunger for food was silenced by the hunger of my heart. Often, instead of eating lunch with the campers, I would take the letter to a quiet place in the woods and, and sit down on the leaves for a different kind of meal. The re- reason that makes me feel emotional is just because, like, how often do I do that with the Bible? He gets a letter from his girlfriend, and he's, his appetite's gone. He's off in the woods reading this letter from her because he wants to know it's, it's totally legitimate. Totally understand that. How often has our appetite been taken away because we want to spend the lunch hour in his word or in prayer? It doesn't happen very much, does it? To have our spiritual hungers outweigh our natural hungers just for lunch, just once. I, I, I think there's a disproportionality in my heart. I, once you get, if, if I have not eaten, I'm not trying to be funny here, you can laugh. If, if I have not eaten until two or three o'clock in the afternoon, hunger becomes the absolute priority of my life. Politeness no longer matters. It's just get me food. I've got to get something in me right now. And this is convicting because how often are our spiritual hungers tiny by comparison to our desire to eat lunch? I mean, that, that, that is quite a thing to consider. Don Whitney said, is there never a time that you want a prayer answered more than you want lunch? Is there never a time you want somebody to be saved more than you want your next meal? That is devastating. How often does the lostness of our children, our friends, our family members, how often does it weigh on us so much that we cannot eat because we are so before God's face pleading with with Him for their salvation? How often does that happen? My goodness, we don't miss a meal in America. But we can miss times of prayer like nothing. I can justify not reading my Bible like that. I could, oh, well, here's five reasons why I don't need to read. I never do that with dinner. Something's wrong, right? Something's disproportionate in my heart. That, that statement stayed with me this week, by the way. Let me read it again. Is there ever a time you want a prayer answered more than you want lunch? Is there ever a time you want somebody to be saved more than you want your next meal? He continues, I want this so much that I'm going to pray about it all day. That's what we say when we're fasting. I want this so much. I'm going to stay all day as much as I can praying. So number two is to, is to strengthen prayer. Number three, we fast to humble ourselves before God. We fast to humble ourselves before God. Just give you a couple verses. We mentioned one, Psalm 35, 13. David says, I humbled myself or afflicted myself with fasting Isaiah 58, 3, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Ezra 8, 21, then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before the Lord. You see how many times humbling and fasting are put side by side in the same sentence in the Bible? Why is that? This this is insightful to me. So often we feel like we kind of got things together, we're independent, we're we're feeling maybe good sometimes, maybe self-sufficient. If you go a few meals without food, what do you start feeling? Weak. Your hands start shaking, right? You feel maybe a little lightheaded. Fasting is humbling because it shows you you don't have it all figured out. You aren't self-sufficient and independent. You are dependent on another. 
You're dependent on God. What does God say about princes and kings? They are men in whom is breath. If you, if you take away breath from them for a few minutes, they're dead. We are so dependent on God and His common grace and His grace to us. So when we fast, it humbles us because we no longer feel strong and self-sufficient. 24 hours without food, you feel weak, you feel needy. You will feel what is true of you all the time, but it is often covered up by food and entertainment. One pastor, or one, I don't know if he's a pastor, one Christian writer, I think it was Chuck Colson said a long time ago, this, this quote, much of our activity these days is nothing more than a cheap anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty life. I think that's true in our culture. I mean, we can't let go of this thing. Much of our activity this, these days is nothing more than a cheap anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty life. It was just scroll, 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 scroll. We know lost people, but we're scrolling. Piper once said this tweet years ago. I never forgot. Just, most tweets, just you forget them. But this tweet stuck itself into my head. He said, on the final judgment, the primary purpose of social media will be for God to prove that your lack of prayer was not due to lack of time. How could that be wrong? On the final day, the proof that we had enough time was, I remember when, when, when the lockdown happened with COVID in March of 2020, uh, we had to do class online for a few months with our students, which was not fun necessarily for anybody, but we did what we could do, do an online class through Zoom, essentially, basically, Google Classroom. And uh, I had some pretty honest conversations with my students, my, 10th, uh, my 11th to 12th graders, something like that. And uh, what, what they said was, we all kind of admitted, we are not busy anymore but we're still struggling to read the Bible, which means all the reasons we had given for why we weren't reading the Bible because how busy we were didn't look like they were really working because now we got nothing to do for months and we're still struggling. So, so let, let's beware of using certain things as an excuse and fasting will uncover that is to humble ourselves before God. Point number four, we humble to express repentance before God. Point number four, we, 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 we fast to express repentance before God. This is clearly the largest example of fasting in the Bible. It was most of them. Let me give you just, just don't turn there, just listen to a couple examples. First Samuel 7, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. And they fasted. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. Ezra 9, they fasted for their great guilt. Jonah 3, Nineveh, they fasted because of their sin. Joel 2, fasting, weeping, and mourning as they were returning to the Lord. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, uh, we are fasting in sackcloth for our sin, our wrong, our wickedness, our rebellion. So fasting is often connected to repentance in the Bible. Number five, we fast to express desperation in prayer. You remember when David conceived the child with Bathsheba through adultery. That child was born, and the Lord brought down an illness so that the child was to die after seven days. Listen to this. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. And David said later, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. 
If David fasted for a full week, apparently, laying on the floor for much of it, so he was unbelievably uncomfortable. He wouldn't take any comfort because he was pleading for the life of his child. How much more should we plead for the eternal well-being of our children? It should just weigh on us to where it's not a duty, it's, God, I have to have this. I want to see you rescue my children. Again, Chuck Colson, I believe, is the guy I heard about who at a period in his life, every Friday, for I don't know how long, I think it was for years, every Friday, he would not eat lunch. And he would pray for the salvation of his children. He took that time from like 11.30 to 1 or 11.30 to 12.30. He wouldn't meet with anyone on Fridays. He wouldn't eat lunch. He would just sit in his office and he would pray for the salvation of his children instead of eating a meal. Number six reason to fast is to express grief. After Saul dies, even though he was David's enemy, David fasts and mourns. When Saul dies, to express grief, we go without food. Number seven, it's the last reason we should fast given in the sermon today. There are more. Number seven, to seek God's guidance in major decisions or transitions. To seek God's guidance in major decisions or transitions. Can you turn with me to Acts chapter 13? Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I'll show you two texts, one in Acts 13, one in Acts 14. So to seek God's guidance in major decisions or transitions, look at Acts 13 verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names them, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so the whole church is fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now to be clear, that is coming through the words of the Holy Spirit speaking through a prophet in their church. We don't have prophets today, at least that is my conviction. Uh, So we're not going to have the exact same experience they had. But listen, Paul's missionary journeys... You know, all those amazing, famous missionary journeys we talk about all the time that dominate the New Testament. How did that whole thing get started? The church was fasting and praying and worshiping, and that's when Saul was sent off as a missionary for his first missionary trip with Barnabas. Look at Acts chapter 14, the very next chapter. Skip down to verse 23. Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders, these are brand new churches, when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So during major decisions or transitions, it seems like fasting was a regular thing. It accompanied that as a group. They would pray and fast in the midst of major decisions and transitions. All right, let me move to the fourth major point of the sermon. So we talked about what fasting is and why we should not fast, why we should fast, and now how often should we fast? Let me be clear here. Two things. Number one. We are, to my knowledge, we are never once explicitly commanded to fast in the New Testament. But it is assumed that we will fast in the New Testament. So Jesus says, you can go back to Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, in verse 17, what does He say? But when you fast. So you could say that's not commanded, but does Jesus assume that His followers will fast? Just like He said, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, He assumes that we will do that. So here's a challenge I'm preaching to myself here. Fasting has not been a part of my Christian life in any sort of regular way since I became a Christian. I'm not proud of that. That's just true. I'm not going to try to cover that up either. So as I've studied this, I've been really challenged by this topic, 
And so maybe you're in the same boat. You're saying, I've never done it maybe more than once or twice in my life. Maybe I've never tried it before. Here's just, just a pastoral wisdom call here. I'm not telling you what to do. But I would recommend trying a a, a, a smaller, not a, don't go dramatic, uh, just a smaller, more reasonable length of a fast. It might be skipping one meal or two meals. And, and again, if you're not able to do that physically, then don't do that. But, but if you are able to do that, consider it. And consider devoting time especially to seeking God's face, being in His Word and seeking that, using that time for prayer and call on the Lord. And when that hunger rises in you and it says, man, I want to eat more than I want to do just about anything else right now. I'm three hours past the meal. I'm five hours past mealtime. I haven't eaten. If that's the case, then you've got to allow that longing to drive you to Christ so that we can find the joy and the comfort in His presence that we would otherwise seek from that meal. We've got to find the joy and comfort in Him that we would otherwise seek from the meal. We're told that the disciples of John the Baptist fasted often. We know the, the Pharisee fasted twice a week, but we are not commanded how often to fast. But, but that we should fast is, is clear in the New Testament. Now, let me come to a conclusion here. Piper again says this, you know, why did God create food in the first place? He didn't have to create food. God could have found a way to get us uh, what we needed nutritionally without eating. He could have done something else. Why did God create the world in such a way that there's bread and water, there, there's food and drink? Why did He make the world that way? And, and here's what, what I think the answer is. Piper says, when we eat, we taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of heaven, Jesus. And when we fast, we say, I love the reality more than the emblem. You get that? When we eat, we say, God, this is an analogy of who you are. You are the bread from heaven. You are the living bread. You are living water. When I eat and drink, I am getting a taste physically like almost a parable of who you are. Just like my, my, my stomach hungers for food and drink, so my soul hungers and thirsts for you. And when I eat and drink, it tells me something about God. Why would, don't, don't think of it as God invented bread and water first, and then He came up with the analogy, I'm kind of like living bread and living water. No, from all, from the beginning, God was the living bread and living water, and He made physical food as a picture of who He already was. Do you get that? And so God says every time we eat, we're so dependent on food. We're so hungry for food. We're so desperate for food. That's telling us something about God. I saw a story one time of a woman who uh, was injured in a national park, and she was hiking alone. And I don't know if she broke her leg, something like that. She was lying alone in the midst of the, basically the desert. And day and night would come, hot and cold, and she had one water bottle. And she talked about her craving for water as she was basically going on the verge of dying of dehydration for several days with almost no water whatsoever. And she just talked about, I would do anything to get a drink of water. And finally, a helicopter rescue team somehow saw her backpack and saw her or whatever, and they came down and rescued her and she survived. But that, when you hear that story, think, that's telling me how much I need Jesus. My soul was not made to run off TV shows. It wasn't made to run off the new album from this band. It wasn't made to run off concerts. It wasn't made to run off sports. It wasn't made to run off relationships. My soul was not designed to run off these other things, family even, as good as that is. My soul was designed to run off my maker, my creator. And so long as I'm glutting myself with all the different things of this world, I am oftentimes not feeling my deep need for who God is. And Jesus says, listen, He feeds the 5,000 in John 6 with the kid's little meal. And then what does he say in the very next day? 
I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just like I gave you bread yesterday, that was a sign pointing to me. I'm the point of the feeding of the 5,000. I am the bread that your soul desperately needs. And I, and I really am closing here, but, but this, this thought I hope sticks with you. You know, Jesus is with that woman at the well, and He keeps talking about what? Living water? And she keeps thinking He's talking about the water in the well? He says, if you knew who I was who was speaking to you, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. If you, if you work through John's gospel, Jesus keeps offering people water. On the last day, the day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, for out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Jesus keeps talking about how he's giving water to anybody who will take it, living water. And then in John's gospel only, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, I thirst. Think about that. The one who created all the water in this world and the one who is himself living water hung on the cross in your place as a sinner, in my place as a sinner. And he got the ultimate deprivation that we deserve. He was cut off. He had no water physically to quench his thirst, but God's presence was turned away. He had no spiritual water to quench his thirst. He was cut off. He was thirsty on the cross, cosmically thirsty, one writer said. Why? So that you and I who deserve nothing but spiritual starvation for our sin can be welcomed into the banquet feast of God. We're going to be invited into the wedding supper of the Lamb, where there will be rich new wine, Isaiah says, and a feast on the mountain of God, a feast that will be absolutely astonishing. And Jesus Himself will provide that for us. His first miracle was providing wine at a wedding. Why? Because ultimately He would be the bridegroom who would provide all of our needs, satisfying all of our needs. Why? Because on the cross, He was cut off from all those things and said, I thirst so that we could never thirst for all of eternity because of what He has done. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, it, it is genuinely convicting to think about how strong our natural hungers are for so many things. Our desire for entertainment sometimes is so strong. The thought of missing the game is sometimes impossible emotionally. Yet how many of us have failed to spend time with you when we should have? How often do we care about the physical pleasures of this world more than the salvation of the people we love? God, forgive us for this sin in our life, preferring certain things more than things we should. And God, I pray that we would not be reckless with fasting, but I do pray that you would teach us to fast, that it would be some part of the toolbox of our sanctification that it would be something that we really begin to do to some degree and that we could experience a hunger for you as we go without the food that we so desire. Help us, God, to truly desire a prayer to be answered more than we desire our next meal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.